Welcome to Fuji Love. This is the show that is all about the Fujifilm X-Series and GFX cameras, but more importantly, it's about the photographers who love to use them. I'm Mark Sadowski, and this show is brought to you by Fuji Love Magazine. For the latest and greatest in all things Fujifilm X-Series and GFX, whether it's news, interviews, and so much more, head on over to fujilove.com. Subscribe today. And now, on with the show. My guest this week is Dale Sood. Dale, for a lot of those individuals that love Fujifilm's documentaries, will know that Dale did a, a great video in collaboration with the the brand new X-H2, uh, the, the 2S, I think we're at right now. <laughs> the, the summer heat has uh, already gotten to me. Uh, I forgot which uh, X-H we have. Um but uh, you did a awesome little video called uh, Kong Many, and uh, in collaboration with Fujifilm. And uh, you, you're a filmmaker. Uh, you 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 are an amazing stills photographer as well. Thank uh, you. It's great to have you on the show, man. Thank you. It's great to be here. I really appreciate it. The the collaboration you had with uh, Fujifilm. I think these mini documentaries are so well produced. Uh, I mean, a lot of them are as, uh, you know, as simple as a promotional video, but other times they're just these great insights into the life of a, uh, a person, uh, whether, you know, you're, you're getting kind of like a slice of life using the Fujifilm system to, to document it. Um, other times it's just a great piece of artwork. Um, what was your experience with, uh, producing this, uh, this short, uh, because you did the, the short and then the making of, which is always must be fun to make. <laughs> well, it's a lot of work, <laughs> you know, when you, have to, working, when, yeah. when you have to produce more than one video, you know, um, <laughs> that, that's sort of the buy-in, but, uh, you know, thanks for those kind words. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, this is a, this is an interesting project. Uh, if you look at my body of work, whether you're looking at my Instagram feed or you go to my website and kind of see the, the work that I do, you know, I work primarily as a cinematographer. It's a little bit of directing. Um, and then photography for me is just purely an art form. I don't do, I don't, there's no commercial attachment to the photography that I do. Yeah. Um, and when you look at the body of work that I have, the Cogmany piece really is in the far left field of what I do. Like it is incredibly out there. Um, I got my start doing doc work a little bit, but not on a, you know, in a major way, um, you know, but I had some early success in the doc world and then left that behind and went to work in the commercial world and, and just did commercials and a bit of narrative. And so um, when Fujifilm, you know, approached me about using the camera, I, there's no, thing in my radar that I was ever going to shoot a doc project like that just was not what I was interested in it wasn't what what I thought my skill set was um and you know and, and in fact Fujifilm knows this uh you know we've had conversations at, at length about it um that I do you know primarily commercial work and a lot of fashion work and I was like hey you know hey guys super excited to work with this camera let me do a really great fashion thing for you um, I've got a lot of resources there. It's going to look incredible. I can make this camera really sing. 
you know, and then Fuji kind of came back to me and said, well, you see, the camera is this really powerful, fast camera, and we really need to shoot some action sports with it. And I was like, guys, it's, uh, it's March in, you know, Canada. Um, I don't know what kind of action sports you think I'm going to shoot, <laughs> but, you know, in, in Southern Ontario where I am, uh, it's just mud and rain and sometimes snow in March. Like nothing is happening. Um, and so, uh, I was like just racking my brain. It's like, guys, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, but I wanted to make them happy, you know? So I, w- I didn't really fight them on it. I was like, you know, I didn't stand my ground. I was like, okay, well, let's, 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 I'm a, I'm a, I'm a solutions kind of guy. Let's, let's figure this out. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I grew up in, in, the, the middle of the country, um, you know, in Manitoba, just north of the North Dakota border. Uh, and I grew up racing dirt bikes and racing motocross and, you know, for a couple of years. And so, you know, even though that's you know, a long, long time away from where I am now, um, you know, there's still some inherent instinct and memories in that, that I thought I could connect with uh, a rider. Um, and I wanted to find a really unique story about riding. I think that, you know, Primarily, we see those kind of action sports, although it's changing, but as a very Caucasian activity. Um, and it has a certain, um, it has a certain uh, stigma attached to it. And I want to tell a more diverse story. Uh, so I started just asking around and, and landed on a couple different contacts. But when I reached out to Ben's parents, um, they were just super excited to hear from me and they seemed really willing to help me make this thing. Um, and it just seemed like in terms of all the other subjects I had to choose from, this was going to be the shortest path because I didn't have a lot of time to shoot. In fact, um, I had about a week, two weeks to, to shoot two days within two weeks to shoot this. Um, and then I was off to Europe and I had to give the cameras back. So um, we had to make some, you know, really quick decisions about how this story was going to be told. And so I had one day at their house, basically, and then around their house, and then one day on the track. And, you know, I think before I, you know, end this long soliloquy, in answer to your question, which is that I think this shows the power of that camera in the sense that this was a project that wasn't my strength. Yes. Um, this was a project that I had no resources in none. Like it took like asking friends of friends of friends, like multiple times before I landed on finding the contact with Ben. Um, and, and I really, um, uh, and this is to say it lightly, if something could go wrong, it went wrong. Like, I mean, the Ben and his family were amazing, but in terms of the weather, in terms of uh, a whole bunch of things around that, uh, in terms of like vehicles breaking down, like everything went wrong. And the fact yeah. that we were still able to pull a somewhat watchable short film out of that <laughs> when like every single idea I had had to be cut, like everything that I wanted to do, I could not do because of extenuating circumstances. Yeah, um, so what and, you're saying is it's a normal Canada day. <laughs> it's just a normal Canada day. And it's filmmaking. I mean, like I've never worked on a single filmmaking project where everything went well. Like part of make, makes you a good filmmaker is two things. A is being able to plan very well. And B is being able to turn on a dime when those plans don't work. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, like here's a great example. We had this one day to shoot at the track. And, you know, when you look at the footage, you're going to see this, that, we two days before we went to shoot this track, we had a massive rainstorm move through the province, 
And the guys from the track called and said, track is entirely flooded. Like it's a lake. Um, and we're like, wow, like I don't know what to do now because now we don't have a track. Um, and I have three days left in which to shoot something. Uh, and so, um, luckily as we got closer to the shoot day, like, you know, as you know, about 24 hours passed, they said, Hey, you know, we managed to free up about 10% of the track. Um, so you got a couple jumps and a couple burns and then the rest of the track is still toast. Um, as a like, great, good enough for me. I'll make it work, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then as on the day of, as I'm driving up to the track, we're in a massive snowstorm. It's, it's below freezing. And now I show up to the track and it's a full whiteout. Like you can't see anybody or anything, you know, it's like, well, this is great. Uh, so, you know, I took Ben inside and, and said, Hey, we're going to, sh- I'm, I've got an idea. We're going to shoot a scene of you getting dressed and getting ready for, you know, practice and things like that. Um, and I'm going to see if this, just the snow stops snowing, you know, and we were lucky that the snow stopped. Uh, ben was a super trooper because it was super cold and I obviously couldn't have him ride with the jacket on and he did him in his jersey. And so we would take a lot of breaks and get a jacket on him as much as possible. Uh, and then later at the end of the day, we got, uh, we finally, the sun came out and I was able to get a bunch of shots with, with the sun at least. But it was like, you know, every, you know, the cinema, the cinema gods were smiting me the whole time, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so the fact that, that, you know, with this tiny little mirrorless camera that's not an Ari Alexa, I was able to, you know, pull out some really nice shots, I think, you know, um, they, I'm, I'm not going to win any awards with it. But like, when you see everything that went wrong, and you see what I ended up with, it's like, well, that, you know, it's not too bad. <laughs> you know, so, so I think that's, that's, that's a filmmaking story. And I think that having a camera that is resourceful, uh, and that is weather resistant, and that can, you know, handle a lot of abuse that you throw at it, allows you to get yourself out of sticky situations a lot easier. If I was shooting this maybe on an Alexa or on uh, a red camera or something bigger, um, it's just not as agile. You can't do as much with it. Um, it's a studio camera. Effectively, you require a team of people with this. I didn't require a team. It was me, you know, and like one other dude, you know, one or two other dudes, depending on the day. Um, so, so I think that that speaks a lot to the technology. Are you familiar with the with the Fujifilm system? Is that is it something that you use? Uh, I, I'm probably not for the professional work, but uh, but for any other kind of uh, anything that would give you the familiar familiarity, or you're just straight yeah. out using it brand new. No, no, I'm definitely familiar with the Fujifilm system. Um, you know, I've uh, this is the first Fujifilm camera I've ever officially owned. Um, but uh, again, like, because I've had a bit of a relationship with Fujifilm uh, over the years, I've got a chance to like, you know, borrow them a lot and, and shoot with a bunch of different ones. Like, you know, they'll lend me a GFX when, whenever I ask nicely. Um, and so a lot of the photography you, you see on my Instagram is actually shot with GFX. It's it nice. to this day, the GFX 100, the original 100 is still my favorite camera of all time. Like it is the images that that camera produces blow my mind every time I shoot with it. Like it, the tonality is just out the door. Like it's unbelievable. Um, they, you know, for the money uh, and for the, how powerful and how, uh, you know, fast that, you know, larger than full frame camera is, uh, it's a remarkable product. So I, you know, but I was a fan of Fujifilm. Sorry. Uh, I was a fan of Fujifilm. Um, uh, you know, I would say originally 
I didn't even know Fujifilm made cameras, you know, until maybe like five or six years ago. It was just right off my radar. And yeah. then a friend of mine, you know, rocked up one day and he had this camera on his neck and, he, and he's like, oh, it's like, that's a nice looking camera. Because, you know, Fujifilm always were the kings of the aesthetic camera. You know, they haven't been making cameras for very long, but they knew right out the gate, we're going to make really nice looking cameras that have this sort of retro vibe with the dial. Yeah. And they're compact. And, and so a lot of artisans really drew, you know, were drawn to them because not necessarily because they took great images or were great to use, which I think they are, but I think they just look cool around people's necks. And so a lot of directors, a lot of cinematographers, a lot of visual artists always had Fujifilm cameras on the neck because they were sort of like the poor man's Leica, you know, that kind of thing. So, so my friend rocks up with this Fujifilm and I, I kind of hold it to my face. And I was like, dude, this camera's amazing. Like just the way it was designed reminds me of like how Apple designs their products. The reason Apple is so successful is that it's just so intelligently designed. You pay a lot of money for that, but like when you rock up to an Apple computer, it just all kind of makes sense. Like you're not, you know, where a PC, you kind of like have to know a bunch of stuff to be able to figure it out. Um, and so Fujifilm was like that. I just hold it up to my face. I was like, all the buttons are where I want those buttons to be. And the viewfinder, all the information is what I want it to, what I want to see. Like I was really, I just love it first sight as soon as I picked one up for the first time. And that was really the, the start of the journey for me, you know, down the sort of the Fujifilm rabbit hole. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, it kind of lends us to where we are today. So like, I'm really super pumped to, to be associated in whatever form with Fuji. Um, and I think, you know, we have to remember that this is a company that is the latest to the game of any camera manufacturer. Um, you know, they're very committed to the film business until, you know, early 2000s yeah. where everybody else is making cameras well, well before then. Um, and so when we consider that, how well they've done in that space, um, how good their products are in that space in that short amount of time, I think what we're seeing now is Fuji just get going. Like they're just starting to really find their voice as, as a digital camera company. Um, and what's going to come on the horizon, I think is, is really what's most exciting. Now, now that you've used the, the XH, uh, 2S, do you see you, your, you and your team, um, for, for your professional work, integrating that camera more and more, you mentioned that you use reds uh, and, and some others. Mm-hmm. Um, is this something that's going to be, uh, like uh, the uh, attention grabber for for like other studios um i'm kind of curious to see how y- your world uh takes to it <laughs> yeah well you know i'll tell you uh this is a conversation that i've had with fujifilm for years you know i've been trying to tell them like guys your imaging is incredible your interface is really great uh make a video camera Right. But it's easy for, a, a, you know, a fan of Fujifilm to say that, right. Cause you have no chips in the game. You don't, you don't, you don't have to pay for the R and D on yeah. this thing. Right. You don't have to deal with the competition. Right. So if they made a video camera right now, uh, it's a pretty crowded space. Uh, so, you know, would they make their money back on that R and D? I, I actually doubt it. Right. So it's not very intelligent for them at this stage, as far as I can see to make a standalone video camera. So what they're doing now is they're just trying to make the video qualities of their mirrorless photo cameras as good as possible. And this is something where, you know, I've been very upfront with Fujifilm on, very honest uh, publicly about, which is 
I don't think the X-H2S is a good video camera. Hey, this is future Mark interrupting past Mark. Um, yeah, that sounded potentially uh, shocking <laughs> on the surface, but I, I, I'm here to kind of deflate that. Um, I, I didn't want to pull it, pull it out the comment or anything like that because that would be altering what Dale was saying. Uh, but I do want to preface with, I asked him if he would be using the, the, the Fuji system in a professional manner and if Fuji was up to task with studio-grade video production. And, and I may have, uh, I don't know if that was a, a fair question to ask, or, uh, but but I think... From his point of view, he was looking at things uh, not so much as like uh, the 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 Sony cameras, the, uh, the the equivalent Sony cameras on the market, or uh, the the you know the the Canons. I, you know, I'm thinking you know the the cinema quality cameras. I think is I, 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 anyway. This is one of those questions that I am definitely going to have a follow up with uh, with Dale. And uh, it should make for some good conversation. But keep in mind, I was asking him if it was if Fuji was now up to snuff with the 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 the, the top of the line production, and uh, th this is his opinion, not consumer grade things. I'm talking about things that they would be using union labor working on camera equipment and things like that for movie productions commercials that sort of thing um but anyway you be the judge um <laughs> it was a shocker to say the least but uh it was still a very fun interview and enjoy the rest uh if you have any questions fujilovefeedback at gmail.com um and and not because it can't produce a great image, it hundred percent can. In fact, what, it probably produces one of the best video images on the market for a small mirrorless camera right now. Um, I think it produces a nicer image than the Sony cameras. I think it produces a nicer image with greater dynamic range than uh, the Canon cameras. Uh, the problem is that Fujifilm has been making film for nearly a hundred years. That's what they're good at. That's the science they know. They have no background in video. They've never had a video product. Whereas Sony, Canon, Panasonic, you name it, they've been making video cameras for decades. And so all the R&D that they've invested in, in those programs just gets ported over to their new cameras. There's no extra cost to them, really, relatively speaking. Whereas it's, if Fujifilm wants to make a really video-centric camera, they have to start from ground up um, and and that cost is, may not be actualized within the marketplace like they'll may, they may never get that money back um, because there's so much competition so they're sort of like well, we're going to stick with what we're good at and monopolize on that and i think that's an intelligent thing to do but you're going to face criticism as a result of that so to clarify more when i say that it's not a good video camera it's just not it's yeah, it's just, it's, it, you know, everybody works at my caveat to this is everybody yes. works differently, right? So if you're, a, if you're shooting weddings, or if you're doing uh, corporate videos, or if you've got a vlog, or 
maybe you're shooting feature films or you're an independent filmmaker or whatever you are, everybody works differently. Everybody likes different cameras for different reasons. And, and, and what is important to one person may be completely unimportant to somebody else. So, um, you know, take what I have to say with a grain of salt, because, you know, the next person you talk to says, man, that camera is amazing for video. I'm not going to shoot with anything else. Right. So uh, but from my point of view, uh, you know, I work with a lot of professional cinema cameras. Right. And cinema cameras are built in a way that allow you to do two things. One is it's speed on set. Right. Because a lot of money is being spent and you can't have something that just you have to go through 12,000 different menus to find the thing that you need. Uh, if there's a button for it, you know, boom, boom, let's go. Right. Uh, and the next thing is, is that there's fail safes on those cameras so that, you know, when you're ro- rolling, you know, when you're not rolling, there's exposure tools, there's all these things. Well, the downside to Fujifilm is that like, you know, I don't know. And I've had this with other, with, you know, the X-T4 and, you know, shooting with cameras like that before where I'm like, I don't know when I'm rolling. Like that sounds silly. Cause like, how do you not know when you're rolling? There's a red light, right. Or there's a record symbol, but like in the pace of a video shoot, whether it's a pro shoot or you just hang out with your buds and having some, you know, shooting some fun footage is that you've got a lot going on. Right. Like you're looking around, you're like, what makes a good shot? Where am I going to go with this shot? How am I going to move the camera? You know, what's my exposure? You've got a million thoughts at once. And if all you're going to give me is a little tiny blinking red thing on a screen, I'm going to miss that. I'm not going to see that. Um, And every other camera on the market, when you press the record button, you hear a ding. You know, you can turn that ding off if you don't like it, but you hear a ding. And then you have a different sort of sound when you hit stop so audibly you know you've cut or you started recording with fujifilm there's no ding there's no audible sounds that you know on the on the sony fx3 you've got a big red square thing all the way around the screen like it and then flashing lights like you know you're recording um and this is a problem that happens in the industry people with even big cinema cameras sometimes They'll be like, okay, that's a cut. And you'll go to cut. And you're like, why is my camera rolling? Like a bunch of my DP buddies have expressed this to me over the years that that's happened to them when all the checks and balances are there. So, so you know, when we're talking about is this camera production ready? I don't think so because it doesn't have those fail safes in unless maybe you've got um, a Atomos recorder, right? Because then the Atomos recorder is pretty obvious when you're rolling. So if you're recording um, raw or just onto your Atomos, that kind of, you know, that's a bit of a workaround there. But in the, in the Atomos has all those exposure tools. It has all those things. So in some ways, yes, you can make it a capable video recording camera as long as you buy an external recorder with it or an external monitor that gives you all that information yeah. that you need. Um, so I think that's, that's a fundamental thing. But like I said, you know, you talk to a wedding guy or a wedding gal who says, this camera's got everything I need. I don't need the beep. I, in fact, I'm fine without it. I just make sure I look at, you know, things like that. You know, it doesn't apply to everybody. But for me, uh, I'm planning to use this camera primarily as a photo camera. <laughs> like I have little interest in shooting video with it um, because uh, it, it just, it's yeah. too difficult at this stage. I hear you. So, uh, and you're yeah. coming at it for, w- w- with how many years of experience you have in, uh, in, in uh, film production? Uh, well, I started in broadcast first, but in film itself, I've been doing this for 10 years. Right so, on. Um, you know, as, as they say, uh, old branches don't bend, they break, right? So if you, if it, at this stage, I'm trying to le- learn a new system that is different than the one I've been learning for the last 10 years, you know, it's hard for me, right? It's, I think it's going to be hard for anybody to be like, I got to 
change the way I think, you know, and that's, and that's, that's a tricky problem for everybody. It is. Uh, but mm-hmm. do you think that now from, from my ears and I'm not a very good, uh, I'm not very good at video at all. Um, coming from somebody who's very amateur at it. Is this something that you think can be filmed with like a possible firmware update or, um, it, it's, yeah, it, it's a great, it's a great question. I, yeah. I can only hope, <laughs> you know, because when I first got these cameras, you know, I was sending notes every couple of days to Fujifilm as I'm test. Cause I had these in, in very much a beta form where there was like, you know, question marks in the menu system, you know, like they had not fully flushed out even what the menu system was going to look like at that point. Um, you know, it's like, Hey, great guys. I'm on the ground floor. I can tell you, and give you, send you some feedback and you guys can fix these things. And it's going to be a banging camera. And like, they did not take a single one of my notes, <laughs> like not a single one. Like it's almost like the engineers, like don't care about this dude, you know, <laughs> like whatever. <laughs> so, uh, you know, chances are like they got bigger fish to fry. Right. So like, I'm not, uh, you know, not angry at them for that, but, uh, I think that we don't know enough about the technology. It's, it's so easy to be online and spout all these thoughts and like, why don't they just do this? And like all this negativity towards camera brands uh, when it's just unmerited, like it's not really merited, right? Like we, there's so much that goes into making a, a camera and the over and the cost of them and what the retailers make on them are so tiny that, you know, it doesn't give them a ton of flexibility to be able to just do whatever people want. Um, and they have to make strategic decisions. And so, you know, what I think Fuji, despite me saying what I saw about, about you know, the camera in terms of the video, uh, I think they made a very intelligent decision. I think the way they've made this camera and, and presenting also the high resolution version that's going to come out later this year, uh, I think was intelligently done. Uh, they've taken the best of their resources and put it where it needs to go. Uh, if one guy in Canada wants a beep uh, and nobody else seems to care, then they're not going to give us a beep, you know, like they don't care. And why should they? Uh, but it seems to me like that would be a pretty easy thing to fix in the firmware, you know, when every other camera yeah. does it, you know? And to your point, um, like what you just said, yeah. we we are at a point where – one Fujifilm is for the uh, right now uh, reacting to people encountering this brand new technology um, that, that they made with the uh, stack sensor um, it, 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 giving it to everybody to use and, and bring getting in all that feedback from everybody for, for you know, any kind of, minor bumps, major bumps there, uh, accommodating for that. Um, and, and they still have part two in the wings, <laughs> uh, where, um, mm-hmm. that, that'll be released later this year. So yeah. The- yeah. And, and, and I mean, this might be a bit of a, um, non sequitur, but I think it is related, which is that, Consider for a second, you know, when I say, okay, all these other camera brands have had a lineage in video, right? So Sony, Canon, whatever, right? And so they've been able to monopolize on that and uh, create uh, really great video products as a result of that previous R&D investment. 
Well, ask yourself, well, what, what's, what's Fuji's shtick, right? Yeah. It's film. And, um, you know, and I still, I'm a film photographer as well. I still shoot, you know, a bit of Fuji film and, you know, like less and less of it. <laughs> you know, I, I've also been petitioning them to bring back the um, FP100C, you know, but they won't start a line. You know, they're not going to start a manufacturing line for, for that. You know, it's just not, market's not there. But that, you know, the, the FP100C was the best, you know, um, instant film that ever existed. And, and as far as I can tell, will ever exist. Um, I've never used an instant film that comes anywhere close to how good that, that is. Why that doesn't still exist blows my mind. Um, you know, so, but, so there is a, a shrinking of Fujifilm's uh, film business, but they have all that intellectual property that they've now moved into their cameras. And the fault of all of this is the fact that, you know, when we see digital cameras and we go through all these like picture profile settings, you know, half people don't use them because they're stupid. You know, they're like sepia tone, toy camera, who uses this, right? Nobody, um, it's dumb. And so when you pick up a Fujifilm camera and you see, oh, there's like a Turna and there's like classic Chrome and there's like, you know, Provia and blah, blah, blah. It's like people just treat it like it's might as well be sepia tone. You know, like they're like, oh, where am I going to use this? But what they're not realizing is that those film profiles do more than any other than any other? Oh, I think some people fight tooth and nail over these film simulations. I think I, I have yeah. seen if blood was able to be shed in forums. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 so they're able to take. I mean, there's a um, a really fantastic article online uh, that. Um, Richie Roach uh, from Fuji X Weekly turned me on to, and uh, I can't, you know, I kind of have to Google it. It's like, you know, the ultimate guide to Fujifilm simulations. And what the author goes through uh, and how detailed he is about, you cannot, it is physically impossible to recreate what they're doing in camera in Photoshop um, because they're utilizing all their secret hidden intellectual property and they're building that in uh to these simulations and so you'll never recreate that look with a raw file out of camera just futzing with your curves and whatever um so the power that that gives you to make really interesting images with life and texture to them that aren't flat dull and boring and actually have some level of connection with whether you want it to feel nostalgic or whether you're shooting flowers or whatever um is is really really powerful and the fact that you can shoot raw with it and then go oh i shot like Belvia. i don't like it you know nostalgic negative would have been better bam you just have to re-export the nostalgic negative and you've got this really you know beautiful image and what's also exciting is i mean those are just jpegs but starting with the XH2S, you can now shoot in the high efficiency codec, which is the 10 bit codec, you know, moving away from 8 bit JPEG. So now, I mean, it's not like raw, but you have the power of 10 bit for editing. So you, you can export this HEIF. Um, and if you want to bring up the shadows or you want to bring down the highlights a bit, you can do that because there's enough information in the file um, in a way that you know, 8-bit, 8-bit JPEG never had. So, um, so I think that, you know, my story with Fujifilm is 
really about you have to look at a camera and ask yourself what the legacy of that camera is. And that will tell you that brand and that will tell you what that camera is probably best at. And, and those Fujifilm simulations are, they do something that no other camera brand on the planet can do. Oh, flat yeah. out. Uh, and, that's, and that's just science. Um, and so I think that's one of the compelling reasons. And that's why I'm proud to shoot with the Fujifilm camera. I think their color science is by far among the best out there. Their skin tones are among the best out there because they have been dealing in color science for almost a hundred years where I can't say the same about a lot of camera brands out there. So, so that's, that's exciting to me. So with that being said, um, and Fujifilm clearly, you know, not, you know, they're, 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 producing the xh2 uh the, the next version is right around the corner uh we could only imagine daydream um what what, what that's going to be <laughs> like um what would it take in your estimation to um not i i don't want to say be on par with the likes of sony and canon because that's all of that is very subjective, but like mm-hmm. from a, from your world's perspective, like what would it take? How, where, where do you think Fujifilm is along that timeline to be kind of sharing the same top of the mountain uh, as uh, the other brands or has some of the other brands position uh, wavered a little bit and, and uh, maybe uh, the, some of the sciences are kind of uh, not up to par as uh, professionals need them to be, or, you know, I'm just kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear what you're getting at. And, you know, I'll tell you one thing, you know, if I had a, a wish list, it would, it would be to be able to have at least a half an hour with one of the head engineers at Fujifilm and, share a glass of Japanese whiskey in Tokyo with them and just ask them some questions. You know, uh, I'm super, I'm not, a, I'm, I will say that I'm not by nature a yeah. technical person. Um, I, one of the reasons why I love film photography and why I shoot film in cinema as well is I like looking through yes. the glass. I don't like looking at a, at an EVF. And that's actually a case why I fell in love with X, the X pro line. Right. It's like, Oh, you know, it's a, you can turn off the EVF and just look through glass. And I think one of the great things about that is that you just become an artist, right? You're like, you look with your eyes and you're like, does this, is this an interesting thing to shoot? Yes or no. Right. And so you waste a lot of, a lot less time when you start to think like an artist instead of like, Oh, my camera will save me. I'll just shoot everything. And then my camera will save me with editing and stuff. And I, you know, I still do that. There's, I'm not going to lie, but like, you know, the, the, um, the, the thing about, about what, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I'm not a technical person. I'm an artist, but the, the technical part of it still has a keen interest. Like I'm still like very curious about, you know, at the high level, why they make the decisions that they do. And a lot of it is, I think is pretty obvious. I don't think you need to be a genie or, you know, a mind reader to figure it out. You can kind of see their market position and, and figure out like, 
you know, we're, we're a company that needs to make money. Um, and so how are we going to make money? Right. Um, and this is, it's all about market position. That being said, um, you know, I do think that Fujifilm is, is in the early stages of bigger things. Um, no one's told me that, but you just have to look at their, the advancement they've made in the last four to five years, you know, the GFX line, um, with just the, the quality of the products they've come out with, uh, beyond the GFX line as well. And to know that they're serious about being a market leader uh, in, in their field. What would it take for them to, to make a product that is video ready uh, in terms of one that would be taken seriously? I mean, listen, I shoot, uh, you know, when I'm shooting mirrorless cameras, I'm shooting a lot with Sony FX3. Um, I'm shooting a lot with like Canon cameras, the C70. And the thing about those cameras is two things. One is, um, they are, you know, they emulate a cinema camera experience. So, you know, all the things that I have in the bigger cinema cameras, I have in some form on those cameras. Um, and so the user experience is truncated, it's changed, but it's re- the, the workflow is relatively the same, you know, to, to, I know that doesn't make a lot of sense, but, um, the workflow is the same. You just have to take more steps in a mirrorless camera, right? Because you, you don't have the real estate for buttons and screens right. and things like that. So you're forced to hide things in menus, right? And like make quick buttons for and cue menus for. And so that slows you down and you got to figure out where's this thing that they need to switch. And so, you know, that's the mirrorless camera experience, regardless of how well it's designed. Um, and, and I think, you know, Fuji does a good job there, but again, they're still very much a photo camera centric experience built for photography individuals. Um, and so I think that that, that needs to improve. Um, and I think I've now overstated that. Um, the second thing is, you know, when I was shooting with the X-H2S, I didn't notice any focus issues. Um, I like to notice a few, but I just thought it was one of the lenses that I was using. Like the 50 mil tends to sometimes yeah. be a bit weird. Um, uh, you know, and so I said, like, I didn't have any focus issues. I thought autofocus was finally up to par with, with Canon and Sony. And I was like, that's what they need to do. You know, the autofocus was garbage before, you know, in terms of video. Um, and uh, and then there's just so much chatter online and so much criticizing saying, uh, why are you saying it's so good when everyone else is saying it's terrible? And there's a lot of like micro shifting in the, in the image. It's like, because I'm not looking for that. I'm not pixel peeping, right? Like if I go and I spend a day shooting with this thing and I bring the footage home and it looks fine to me and I and it makes the cut and I haven't noticed, then and I've stared at this thing like 20 times, then the person who's going to watch my video once, guaranteed will never notice. Like they'll never notice. So, so you know, for me, it was good enough for me. But then of course, yeah, once I started digging deeper, I was like, okay, it's not as good. And one of the things that Sony and Canon are really, really good at in this space is that, I mean, again, they, they have the, the R&D behind it from earlier years, but they've kind of smoking everybody with their intelligent autofocus. Like it just goes, that's a human and I'm going to stick on that human no matter what you do to this camera. And that's like that, you know, matter even whether the human's facing me or not, that's crazy impressive. And it never like shifts, relatively speaking. But those cameras micro shift as well. We're just, we're not really paying attention to it. So my sort of final point on this is that 
we really have to separate ourselves out as consumers and, and makers. You know, we have to draw a line where we ask, how good does that technology need to be? Because if you can't tell us a good story with the technology that already exists, then there's no help for you. There really isn't. And so this, like all these little things that we critique on these cameras, the problem is not the camera. The problem is the art, the person, you know, with the idea behind it. And so um, some of my best work is out of focus. It's, you know, not particularly clear. The cuts are weird, but it gets me a lot of work, you know, because I'm selling an idea. I'm selling a mood and I don't need absolutely picture perfect focus all the time. But maybe if I shot weddings for a living, maybe that would be the most important thing to me, right? So um, I think everybody's needs in terms of what they want out of a Fujifilm camera to move forward is different. Um, you know, and I haven't, if you can't tell, I haven't really made up my own mind about what needs yeah. to happen there. Because it's, it's just so different for everybody, you know. Um, but I'd like to see the experience get a little bit closer to what Canon and Sony are offering. That's what I'd like to see. I think if they can do that, they're in a really good place. You know, they're really in a place where they can dominate the market. Um, and I think that, uh, super 35 is still a very, very relevant format. So APS-C is still incredibly relevant. Um, I do struggle with, you can't get as wide on super 35. Um, that's, you know, you got to really use extra, extra wide lenses to get yeah. the width that you need. Um, and, we, and I've been in, in full frame has spoiled me for that in the last little while. Um, but, uh, but outside of that, um, you know, I'm, I bet you they're going to come out, you know, like those GFX sensors, if they have enough firepower behind them to remove the, to remove the, um, rolling shutter, um, to get higher frame rates, to get, you know, better readouts, if they make a video camera with uh, with a sensor like the GFX sensor, get out of town. The thing is going to be a monster, you know? Um, so, you know, maybe they'll do something like that, right? It's just a matter of time before the technology allows you to do that, right? And in a big enough box with a big enough processor, I bet you they could do it right now, you know? Um, the, the Alexa 35 camera that just came out, that's like $130,000. They've had that sensor for 20 years, but they didn't have the parts. The technology didn't exist to make the sensor. But from an academic point of view, that sensor already existed and it is the best sensor on the planet right now. So there's technology that this company has, that Fujifilm has, that they've been probably sitting on for 20 years and they just don't have the infrastructure yet to realize it. And so, um, you know, I, I think this is the case you can take for all brands, but just wait and see what they can do. Because I think as technology advances globally um you know you're going to see bigger things out of these companies that that haven't been able to do it until now interesting that that yeah i mean i'm, I'm curious to see what, what what is out there i mean of course you you would always read on on petapixel like canon to sit and on like this uh you know back in the day like you know 500 megapixel sensor or, or like um you know these ungodly uh, things that could see in the dark, and uh, I mean now <laughs> cameras can see in the dark, <laughs> so it's like um, yeah. Yeah. blurred lines there. Um, as far as so here, here is my um, take. I, I'm I'm 
by no we no means saying that the GFX or any Fuji camera is uh, perfect. Although I am coming from it from a biased perspective, uh, all, all things considered. <laughs> um, uh, so I will preface with that. But when I look at uh, YouTube videos that are quote unquote informative, um, uh, quote unquote even comical in nature, uh, you know, they try to keep that, but still try to be informative. I find that the nitpickiness at the autofocus is something to, I, I don't know how much of that is truly warranted versus uh, how much of it is just not, I don't want to say misinformation, but you know, everyone's, experiences are you know their 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 own um but like how much of it is self-inflicted how much of it is like how much of it is um like could have been prevented with some uh, regular use like for example uh and cor- by the way correct me if i'm wrong because i i by no means uh, am an expert but when we're talking about like doing cinematic footage people are using like, you know, these ungodly bokeh uh, in the background that that you might as well have Vaseline on on the lens. Um, Like I, I, is there any movie production that uses that shallow depth of field? I always was under the impression that uh, like five, six, uh, you know, with a telephoto lens was like, gives you that, rich bokeh anyway um and so needing to go 0.95 is uh overkill and so your autofocus will kind of fluctuate around that totally right i mean you're not wrong right um well thank you that's what i was looking for (laughs) yeah, yeah 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 you're not wrong um Although, like, again, it's a matter of subjective opinion. Uh, you know, there's a lot of cinematographers that always shoot wide open regardless, you know, and, and they're wide open on, you know, at, at, at T2 and, and sometimes, you know, T1.3. Um, you know, especially if you're on a wider lens, then being wide open is you still got like a huge range of focus there. So it's, it's, it's not like razor thin. Um, it just becomes more razor thin as the, the longer you go. Um, I mean, this is a, you know, very much a non sequitur away from Fujifilm, but I think it's a good point to be made nonetheless, is that um, I've been fighting, you know, the whole time I've been in the cinematography world, I've been, you know, as I've been teaching cinematography and, and uh, you know, I teach with a couple of academic institutions and, and have a lot of conversations around cinematography. And, you know, I had one person the other day say like, you know, what about this camera? You know, you know, why does this camera seem so cinematic? And why does this camera X camera not? And it's like camera has nothing to do with it. Your lens has nothing to do with it. I mean, it's not saying nothing. That's, that's a bit blasphemous, but that's very little to do with it. If you want something to be really cinematic, number one, it's the sound. Like the audible experience is like 80% of your cinematic experience. If you turn on Netflix, close your eyes. The layering that's going on is madness it is there's like thirty thousand layers of audio right to bring you into a world 
Um, and as long as the audio is good, your picture can be not so good and it will still look cinematic because it, your, your, your brain is being bombarded by a wealth of information. Um, then from there on, the next step after getting good audio is really good production design. It's your setting. You know, if, if you're shooting, you know, somebody up against a white wall, there's nothing you can do to make them look good. There's nothing you can do to make a person up against a white wall look good. It's impossible, right? So, you know, put somebody in like, you know, mid-century modern house in Palm Springs. Just that right there with my iPhone is going to look incredible, right? Because the set deck is just like unparalleled. And then you go, let's choose the time of day, right? Let's, let's shoot this in the morning or let's, you know, when the sun's coming up over the Palm Desert and firing into the front living room. And then we're going to add some haze, you know, like all of that is cinematic. And then let's throw in some really good looking people, right? That are really good looking to look at, or they're just really interesting and they give really good performances, right? All of this stuff can be shot with a standard definition DV cam from the mid nineties, and it will still be crazy cinematic. But if I shoot, Somebody against the white wall with bad lighting and terrible audio with the, with the most expensive camera on the planet at F 2.0, you know, garbage in, garbage out, man. <laughs> you know, like, you should have gone 1.4. So, uh, that would have helped. Is, <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, so that's my issue with um, a lot of the rhetoric online about technology is that there are two camps uh, online. Uh, there are two camps in the world. Either you're uh, a complete Luddite and you're an artist or you're a, someone who's hyper-focused on technology and you're really, that's what interests you is the technology. Um, and neither camp are wrong. And of course, the, the, there's a gray area in the middle, right? There's a lot of us that are that are kind of float back and forth between those two. But the fight's always between those two camps of people. Um, and you know, the artists are saying, just go and be an artist and learn what it likes to, what it means to make good art. And other, and the other camp is saying, you know, we need better gear and, and, you know, these companies are letting us down and, and, uh, you need this to make that. And, 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 and neither side is right or wrong. They all contribute to the story. Um, you know, if I've got all those things that I mentioned in place, then of course I'm going to want a really good camera to capture yeah. all of that. It makes perfect sense. So can I have all those things? And then suddenly I'm going like, well, this is also good. I'm going to shoot this on my iPhone. Well, no, because that all the effort I put into making the set design and the sound and everything look good. I'm going to want to go the distance and make sure that I have really great lenses and a really great codec and a really, you know, I've got enough media and I've, you know, all this, I, I, it's a reliable, my camera's not going to die on me, like all this sort of stuff. Right. So, so it is part of the conversation that needs to happen. And an intelligent working artist is going to need to know the capabilities and the limitations of their tools um, and when to use some and when not to use others. Um, so so I think that, you know, in, you know, kind of coming back to what you're saying about like shallow depth of field and things like that, again, like there's, there's also fads, you know, um, you know, Greg Toland before he shot um, uh, Citizen Kane was, was experimenting with deep focus. They had enough lights on set that he's like, I can probably set the lens to F16, you know, before they, they just couldn't have enough powerful lights to do it. 
Uh, and then when they can just fire a bunch of light on stuff, they're like, let's see what F-16 does. And he did that on a film or two before Citizen Kane. And he's like, okay, I figured this out. We're going to do this entire film in deep focus. There's not going to be nary a, like, we're not going to go lower than F-16. And it created a fad, you know, it created a, a, not even just a fad, it created a new style of filmmaking that was, a, you know, into the future, never changed, you know, like people still look to Citizen Kane to try to recreate some of those shots in modern filmmaking. So, um, you know, when the 5D came out and people saw, you know, um, uh, a, a full yeah. frame field of view and, and a shallow of appeal, of course it was like going to the circus and seeing something for the first time. You're like, wow, I've never that seen that. That is true. That was remarkable. You know, people, people only saw that with IMAX. And even then IMAX was like shooting from a blimp or something, you know, like on a mountain, like where everything's wide anyways, you don't even notice it. You know, it's, it's just like, really, if you're in the theater, it's like a lot crisper than, you know, a 2k scan would have been. Um, Cause your negative is so massive, but that was the first time creators had a camera in their hands that could create a look like that. And rightfully so they're going to get fascinated with the shallow depth of field. Right. Because it's, it's, it's the low hanging fruit, right? It, immediately your eye goes, that looks cool. Even if what you're actually shooting, isn't that really yeah. cool? It kind of looks cool. Right. Unfortunately, it can really ruin your story if not handled yes. correctly. Right. So, um, uh, that, that becomes the issue, right. Is we need to separate ourselves out from, uh, from what is just something that's cool and something that actually is a tool, a storytelling tool, whether it's a still image, a still photo or video that can help us, you know, tell our story. And, um, and we have to find our own voice. And if your voice is every photo you make is super shallow to the field, that's your voice and you have something to contribute and you're not wrong by doing that. Art is incredibly subjective. And the only time art fails is when the person making it is not able to make it in a way that connects with their audience in the way they intended. That's it. Everything else is open to conversation. The art I make is no better or worse than anybody else's. It's just, it, it's the way I make it, you know? Um, so uh, I can tell you what yeah. I prefer. <laughs> you know, I can, I can tell you what, I can tell you what Hollywood audiences prefer and I can tell you what, um, uh, ad agencies prefer. Um, everyone has yeah. a preference. And if you make a, and if you've got to pay your bills in this trade, then you need to know those things. Um, and so I'm not going to shoot T one three on a 70 mil lens uh, for uh, a bank commercial because um, the agency would fire me. <laughs> you know, so uh, we need to be aware right. of those things, right? And, and but if if you've got no one to answer to if you're just you and your camera man go do whatever the hell you want you know like turn off the internet don't listen to people just go be you and make whatever image you want to make um and your camera should just allow you have enough technology to allow you to do that so that you love it that's it you don't love it then you know look at why maybe it's your camera but probably not that is the best words to uh, to, to bring these uh, full circle. Uh, but before we uh, go, uh, man, I, we're, we're going to have to do this in two parts because th- th- we, we've only <laughs> just scratched the surface. Uh, I do want to end it on, on your stills photography because I'm looking at your, um, your, your Instagram and 
this is some of the coolest stills uh like, like your your portraits uh, talk about like that old film style like th- this mm-hmm. is just amazing like you have this uh it, it's not a retro look it's 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 you know mm-hmm. modern but you know using those the, those old colors that you find in film yeah um and i'm looking at uh you, you know the the models that you're using the uh mm-hmm. what is it? you know the girl with the curly hair and the drink like just mm-hmm. uh, so when you're not being a cinematographer you, you say you're doing this for fun tell me how how mm-hmm. this makes you unwind like what what is it to that 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 you're doing here to to kind of uh just do this on a whim or or do this for for your own uh enjoyment yeah uh thank you for those very kind words these are amazing that um it's uh, yeah yeah it's 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 really nice to hear um you know i do photography for myself uh and for no other reason uh the reason uh, you know i i kind of grew up shooting photos a little bit uh to give you some context like i'm i'm 46 oh me too uh yeah i yeah and uh, look at us look at us not, not old, but old guys. Uh, and, um, you know, photography was a part of my childhood. Uh, my dad had, uh, you know, a camera. My, my mom had a camera. They gave me a couple cameras when I was a kid. So I still have, like, some photos, you know. From my youth, I, I was just kind of fascinated with cameras. Um, and then, then, you know, various things changed in my life. I didn't do any more photography until about, you know, I, I want to say about 18 years ago uh, when the digital transformation happened again uh, or it happened for the first time uh, out of film photography and into digital one of my friends sold me his film camera because he was upgrading to a digital camera and i was like yeah i'll buy that uh and started and honestly started shooting predominantly uh fuji film slide film like velvia and, and provia uh because i was a rock climber at the time uh, and uh, still am, but you know, that's the sort of the apex of, of my climbing. And I knew that I wanted to get my photos in magazines and the magazine said, you got to shoot uh, color reversal film. Uh, so I learned, you know, I relearned photography, you know, on this very, you know, picky kind of film stock, right. That doesn't give you yeah. a lot of latitude. You kind of got to nail it. Um, but I, you know, just looking at those photos in my eye loop, I was just like, this is dope. Like, this is, the colors are so amazing, you know, it just was this immersive experience. Um, and then, uh, again, like kind of fell out of it a little bit. And then when the DSLR revolution kicked up again, I, I, I bought a camera, started shooting. This was like 2011. Um, and then, and then I found that as I was getting down the road of s- becoming a cinematographer and becoming a filmmaker, and that the problem with motion is that, Every time you choose to hit the record button, it's a big to do, you know, like you've got to think what's the shot that comes before this, what's the shot that comes after this, um, how is this all going to edit together, it's not just a still image, like the camera's moving, so like, oh, this looks great here, but then I go over there and it looks like crap, so how am I going to move the camera, you've got to, you've got, your problems are 20-fold when you record video, um, your gear is 20-fold, your budgets are 20-fold, like everything multiplies exponentially once you decide you're going to shoot video. So 
the ability to satiate myself as an artist wasn't there at the rate that I wanted it to be shooting video. It just was this slow ship that was really slow to move, really slow to be agile. And your feedback loop was just sometimes months away. You could shoot something today. I've shot a project, a couple of projects last year this time that are still not released yet. They're still in some various stages of post. So it's not an instant gratification world to live in. And as a result, learning um, is truncated. You don't feel like you advance as an artist as much because you're just waiting for that feedback group to catch up. Photography allowed me to go, oh, this is like kind of, you know, no, I've got, you know, I've worked with photographers all the time and they're some of my best friends are photographers and it's no slide to them. But photography is kind of cheating. It is. Um, it's a lot easier to get a really good photo. It's not a lot easier to get a great photo, but it's a lot easier to get a good photo than it is to get good video. I would agree um, with that. And yeah. And so, and that's why it's so popular because, you know, everyone's got a phone in their pocket now. Um, and everyone's becoming a pretty good photographer because they're shooting lots. Well, if they just um, held a, and that's if great they just see. held the phone the right way, <laughs> the video would be so yeah, much yeah, yeah, better. Exactly. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, for me, um, you know, when you look at my, all the photos that I've taken, none of those people are models. Uh, they're all my nice. friends. And, and when I meet new people on a film set and I think they're cool and they, and uh, something about the way they look resonates to me, I'm like, Hey, do you want, can I take your, can we do a portrait session? And because I work in fashion and I work with all these fashion photographers, their style has influenced me. Um, uh, and so, uh, I am like, you know, I appreciate the compliment, but like when you compare, when I look at my photos and I compare it to my colleagues who make a living as professional fashion photographers, I mean, my, my photos are somewhat laughable. Um, but at the same time, I don't have a stylist on set. I don't have a hair and makeup person. I don't have any of that. I don't have an assistant. I have nothing. It's me and my camera often with manual lenses. I often even with my digital cameras and my Fujifilm camera that's sitting next to me right now, I'm ha- I have my you know 28 mil Takamar sitting on it, right? I love vintage optics and I love shooting with them. Um, and so I get a lot of blurry photos, even with using focus peaking. It's just like, oh, like 80% of the shots are just garbage, yeah. you know? <laughs> so, cause like, ah, oh, it's out of focus or whatever, right? So, um, but it allows me to experiment and it allows me um to find my voice as an artist that I can then uh, flex in my motion work. And that's 100% what it's allowed me to do. And, and photography for me is just, there's no stress. I took a job once uh, last year shooting photos professionally because it was a favor. And I said, I'll never do that again. It was a horrible experience. And what I love about photography and you know, going back to those Fujifilm simulations is it takes me to another world. There's no expectations. I go out and shoot whatever I want. And if a photo really, really resonates with me, I post it. And it doesn't mean everyone else is going to like it. A lot of times there's an inverse relationship where, um, where the artist, the photo that the artist likes is the one that the least, like the public yeah. likes the least. Because, because what photography is for me, and I think what it is for a lot of artists, is it's a journey into nostalgia we're on this planet trying to figure out who the hell we are. We're trying to figure out what do we offer the world. Um, 
in what we offer our friends and our family by just existing. And by being an artist, when you look through your lens and the, the time that you choose to snap a photo, you're doing that because of something in you that was bred into you um, through your childhood, through your life experiences, um, you know, 1980s television uh, and films and growing up on a farm, all those things. Uh, and, and the ads in my dad's Playboy magazines that I found hidden in his cupboard, you know, like not even the Playboy photos, mm-hmm. just the ads resonate with me, right? So when I see anything that reminds me of this stuff, I'm going, I'm going to shoot it because I want to understand myself better. And so when the photo resonates with me for enough, enough for me to be happy with it and post it, it means that it meant something to me. Um, and, and I'm going to admit, like, you know, I'm looking for the dopamine hit. I want people to resonate with it as well, but not everybody does. And so some photos just kind of die a death publicly, but they matter to me. Um, and so I don't know that that's the right answer. Like, you know, I'd like to be more successful as an artist doing, you know, all the things that I do. But at the end of the day, I can't imagine yeah. doing anything else. Like being having a photo, having a camera in your hand is one of the coolest things on the planet. It is just one of humans greatest inventions and i'm so blessed that it inve- that that it was invented i don't know what i don't what else i do amen to that you know it's just so and cool with so, that like what, what is when you mention the film sims which one is uh do you have a favorite or uh do you have a group that you use most uh yeah i mean this i mean it gets you know like which one's your favorite child like, my, my, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. My, my, my photos definitely have that nostalgic tip of the hat too. Um, you know, whether I like it or not, sometimes I hate the fact that it does. But uh, for me, nostalgic negative uh, is very much like yeah. old Kodachrome kind of deal. Um, so that, that really resonates with me. And then I really like classic Chrome. Um, classic Chrome is just like this really nice, I want to say like neutral, um, you know, where Provia is just a little bit too heavy handed, in, in my opinion. Um, I know that like, I know that uh, Fujifilm intended classic chrome to have this sort of Kodachrome look to it. Um, that was the intent with classic chrome. It was the only simulation that they were trying to do that didn't simulate their own film stock. Yeah. Um, and, but, but they know enough about film to kind of like look at Kodachrome and go, yeah, we get it, you know? Um, where Nostalgic Neg was really about like this new American yeah. color movement, um, which had its own vibe, right? So um, it, it's, it's yeah, it's sort of tricky. I, I don't particularly like overly saturated images, so I tend to stay away from things like Velvia and stuff like that. Like, it's just not my jam, yep. you know? Um, but there's a really cool thing, too, that I want to look into more, which is, uh, the reason Velvia exists is a really cool kind of story, which is that it has a lot to do with the psychology around memory colors in that when we remember colors, we remember them completely different than they actually yes. are in real life. Um, and so when they made Fujifilm, when they made Velvia, the actual film stock, they wanted to make it more saturated because they like, when people think of a flower, those flowers are often more saturated than they were in real life. So we're going to make that film stock be closer to people's memory of the thing than the actual reality of the thing. Um, and I find that unbelievably fascinating. 
Um, and I would love to run experiments on that, you know, to see like, where's my connection to nostalgia? Like what's my connection to certain tonalities in the shadows, tonalities in the highlights, um, uh, the way my brain represents certain colors. Um, because I think that's what we do when we edit our photos. We're like, I don't like the way this looks. I, I want it to feel more like yeah. how I see it in my head. And that's when we start screwing with the image. And that's what these, these simulations do is they, you just keep dialing until you get to one that goes, yeah, that's how it kind of feels to me. You know, it doesn't look real, but I don't want it to look real. I want yes. it to look like how it feels. And, yeah. and that is just the, the, the so. brilliance and genius behind the film simulation. I, I you know what, that, that is fascinating about, uh, the, the Velvia. I, 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 I I hope you put it to the test. Yeah, yeah. There's, I, I mean, I, I haven't researched it, but you know, I'm, that article that I pointed to about the Fujifilm simulations, he talks a little bit about that in that article. Um, and uh, I really should uh, tell your users where that article is. I I had it bookmarked, and uh, of course, with me in front of my computer here, I suddenly can't find it. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, <laughs> you know, that's always the way. Um, but uh, yeah, it's easy to find. Um, but he sort of just touches upon it, right? And I was like, well, there's got to be an academic somewhere that studies this for a living, you know? And and to discuss that with them would be, would be wild. That would be awesome. Um, but um, yeah, and one other thing that I think uh, Richie from FujiX Weekly said to me that was really profound, I think I wanted to say during our, our, our discussion when it comes to these simulations is that there's a lot like, you know, look at the industry, man. Like you go on YouTube and try to get like all these like film simulations and like people selling like their LUT packs and this and like get it close to film and everything looks like film. And there's an inherent problem with that, which is even from the Fujifilm side, when you, there's no standard for a filmic image. So let's say, let's take, let's take uh, Pro yes. H 400, for example. Right. I think when I say Pro H 400, if you shoot film, and you shoot Pro H400, you you probably have a pretty good idea of like what that looks like. Like they they have a certain color yep. cast to it. Um, for me, it's like cooler. It's magentas. Um, you know, it's things like that that really stand out. And the you know in a controlled lab um, where they're like pumping this out, you know, inside their lab they can go, yeah, that's you know, everything is scientifically identical. It's great. But the problem is is that when we're trying to access a filmic image, we're accessing a film, our idea, individual, Dale's idea and Mark's idea and Bob down the street's idea. And our access to that is based on everything that we've seen, right? Every photo we've taken, everything we've seen on television, everything we've seen in a magazine over our lifetime. Yeah. And the thing about that is that when you take that film stock and you put it through a camera, well, the camera's got a lens on it. Every lens is different. The, you know, the quality of every single lens will be different. So if I take that roll of Pro 400 and I run it through five different cameras, like five rolls of 400 that are all, that are all you know, tested and, and harmonized, and I run it through five different cameras, I'm going to get – and take the same photo. I'm going to get five different looks of different contrast, different colors, different exposure. It's all going to be different. You overexpose – Fuji 400 film stock and bring it down, you get a warmer yes. look. It, you know, the color temperature changes, right? So there's, to the end of the day, there is no standard when it comes to what is a filmic look. And there's no standard for each filmic simulation. You know, Fujifilm 
cannot recreate Provia because there is no standard for how Provia actually looks because of lenses, but then also the developing. Your developer has a huge impact on in the printing on how all of our ideas of what is filmic looks in terms of colors. The only thing you can say for certain is how is halation, right? Halation around highlights is really the only earmark that digital cameras can't really touch. They can't, they haven't figured out how to make it look like that. But in like, and, and, and yeah. bit with the grain, of course, but in terms of like colors and where colors land, it's a floating target, you know? And so you'll never in, in ever be able to do a perfect film simulation because there was no target to hit and there yeah. never will be. You'll um, only be able to capture that and, spirit. And I think people just need to realize that. Yeah, and just capture the spirit of it. And that's all Fujifilm is trying to do, right? Is capture the spirit of those film stocks. Um, and it gets you in the wheelhouse. So uh, I think they've done an awesome Absolutely. job of it. Right? They do a better job of it than anybody else. So. Right on. Although, uh, can you imagine if uh, uh, Kodak had this foresight and, and did it with uh, <laughs> had a X100 equivalent where you got to do Kodachrome and Portra. Yeah. Well, they did, but they screwed yeah. it up. You know, that's the end of the, that's that story, right? I mean, they just they just were kind of clueless about what everything was happening, and and Fuji was ruthless. They they just cut their losses. They're like, we're getting out of the film game as much as we can, and we're going to put our chips into here, and they were very intelligent and and they also had like all these lenses and everything so they had like you know this whole world of uh medical optics and yes. imaging you know where kodak didn't all kodak had was their film business they had nothing else to lean on they were one and of the so first pioneers in digital like, photography in digital photography yeah they were they 100 percent they, they just dropped they just, that ball they just they completely wet the bed uh, on that. Yeah, it's unfortunate, you know. But uh, and and you know, there's a great story too about like how they Kodak. I mean, there's this whole rumor about you know Fujifilm being in with the Japanese mafia and uh, controlling the space. And so when Kodak tried to move into Japan, that you know the mafia basically like you know didn't let them. Uh, while Fujifilm just kind of overran North America, they came into Kodak's market and just ate a bunch of it up. And then Kodak kind of tried to sue them saying, uh, you know, you guys are prevent. it's like a racketeering thing. You guys are preventing us from accessing the Japanese market. When in truth, the Japanese just really did not care about Kodak at all. Like they just yeah. were not interested. And um, we also have to own up to the fact that the way the Eastern market sees imaging is very, very different. And this has been the issue with Sony cameras for a really long time. Sony cameras are like, you know, I was watching the great British Bake Off and they were shot on like F55. So I was like, what, you know, my first look at, you know, watching this, like what camera is this shot on? Cause the, the colors are like bananas. Like they're so like punchy yeah. and like vibrant, you know? And I looked it up. I was like, Oh, of course it's a Sony 55 <laughs> because Sony engineers are just thinking like they're making stuff for a Japanese audience. And if you've ever been to Japan, you know that like, it's like you're getting punched in the face with like yes. sounds and sights constantly. Right. We're, we're much more demure and muted muted here in North America or in, in the Western world, in Europe and, as well. And so, you know, part of Fuji's popularity in Japan, not only just being patriotic and a Japanese company, but also that they are making products 
that speak to, you know, it's made by Japanese for Japanese. And you have an American company coming in going, well, we're going to like kick some butt here. Japanese like, oh, we don't really care about your film stock. It's not that great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's just like, it doesn't look like the things we want it to look like, right? Um, so, you know, part of imaging too, and a lot of complaints that people have in the Western world about certain cameras have a lot to do with cultural issues uh, around how cultures see colors and uh, contrast and how we deliver entertainment. Um, and that's, in the, if all of your engineers are Japanese, then don't be surprised if your camera is very Japanese in everything that it gives you, right? Um, and, you know, the same can be said for, you know, German companies and things like that. So um, that's part of the, that's part of the imaging story. Right on. Um, let's uh, put a bookmark there because. Um, <laughs> I talk a lot. It's part of my attention dude, deficit dude. disorder. So uh, if, if, if any listeners have gotten this far, I applaud you for listening I to could, this long. <laughs> I could keep going and just, just keep listening because the, these stories are amazing. And I, the next time we have you on, I definitely, man, I can't wait to go into your origin story. Um, that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, a creative mind like yours to see where uh, things began and how it began. Uh, that's going to be really cool, but man, uh, we, we got to cut it short right now. But uh, while we wait for part two, uh, why do you tell the world where they can find you on the web? Yeah, uh, everywhere on the web is my moniker, Arts and Rec. Uh, so uh, whether you're on whatever platform you're on, uh, it's A-R-T-S-A-N-D-R-E-C. Uh, and that's the case for Instagram. Uh, I have a Twitter account. Don't really use it that much. Uh, and then on my website, artsandrec.com. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's kind of where I live. So uh Right out. on. <laughs> Man, Dale, it was awesome having you on the show. Um, and and I can't so much, wait for, the, for, for, for part two. Yeah, same here. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I hope to see you back next week. I wanted to also mention one more time that this is brought to you by Fuji Love Magazine. For the latest and greatest in all things Fujifilm X-Series and GFX, head on over to fujilove.com. Subscribe today. And my name is Mark Sadowski. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter. Mostly Instagram, though. I'm at Mark Sadowski. That's Mark with a C. And you can also check out my other podcast, Xmark. It's a Fujifilm-esque kind of show, where it's more spice of life and pretty infrequent. But if you want more of my voice... That's the place to check it out. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon.